Good morning, Harvest Fellowship. It's great to see you all. Actually, I can't see you, but I can't wait to see you. We're going to be looking at a great passage today, the third in the series of what really matters in life. Before we get to that, I would like to share with you uh, that I'm going to be going on sabbatical in June, July, and August. Our church is absolutely wonderful to the pastors, and it's my turn. I get to go on sabbatical for three months. Uh, pray for me. You know, I'm going to be seeking the Lord, and I really think he has some great things in store for that. But I'll probably see you anyway during that time period. Well, at any rate, we do have Dan and Jim and Rocky and Bill. They'll be filling in and uh, bringing the word of God in a, in a really great way, and so you are going to be taken care of. But today, we're going to look at what really matters in life in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, before we check out our passage in Mark. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 states this, In their case, the God of this age, now that's a reference to Satan. We saw last week how all false gods are actually demons in disguise. Well, this is a reference to Satan himself. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, he is blinding the minds of unbelievers specifically to keep them from seeing the glory of God. The foundation and the goal of the gospel is that Christ's splendor or glory be revealed. And so it makes sense that Satan wants to stop that. The glory of the Lord. I think of Blaise Pascal. He was a brilliant mathematician. And one of the things that they found after he had died was he had sown this Thing that he wrote many years before, he had sewn it on the inside of his overcoat that he wore every day. And when they discovered this at his death, this is what it said in his overcoat. In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12, fire, all capital letters, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ. He had such an experience that he had to write it down. Such an experience that he described it as fire for two hours. He experienced the glory of the Lord. Thomas Aquinas abandoned his magnum opus after an experience of the glory of the Lord that he never even talked about afterwards. The glory of the Lord. Moses begged God, show me your glory. And he got to see it. You see, what really matters in life is seeing the glory of God. Look at our passage, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. 
Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied, Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Can you imagine it? What it was like? They're going up the mountain, Peter, James, John, they're with Jesus, and then all of a sudden, he transforms and they get a glimpse of who he really is, and they see the glory of God. Can you imagine this? Would you like to experience something like this? See, the glory of God. Let me give you a definition for the glory of God. Stephen Nichols says, God's glory points to his transcendence, his extraordinary nature, his beauty, his excellence, all of which set him apart from and far above all that he created. Yet God's glory is known, revealed. It is revealed both in nature and in the word, seen most conspicuously in Christ. Even in these revelations, it is an unbounded glory. It cannot be contained. It spills out, as it were, to encompass that which it confronts and encounters. This glory not only terrifies, but transforms human beings. It is God displayed. The glory of the Lord. And we see in our passage, first of all, verses one through six, to see the beauty of Jesus can be terrifying. And we see that that's their initial response. It wasn't just their initial response. In fact, it's fascinating when you look at Mark's rendition of this occurrence, along with Matthew and Luke's, specifically concerning the area of being terrified. Mark says in verse 6, since they were terrified. Look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. Matthew adds some things to this account. And in verses 6 and 7, it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up, don't be afraid. So when they heard the voice, they were terrified, according to Matthew. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 34. 
in Luke, he brings out, he says, while he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. So notice here, according to Luke, when the cloud came, they were afraid. According to Matthew, when God the Father spoke, they were afraid. According to Mark here, they, when they saw the whole incidence of, of uh, Peter, uh, Peter speaking and, he's, and they see uh, Elijah and Moses, they're afraid. And so you think, okay, what's going on? They were afraid the entire time. They were terrified. That's what we see. And to see the glory of God is terrifying but in a good sense. You see, that brings us to the question of what is the fear of the Lord? Because it's different than being afraid, as we'll see in some passages. What is the fear of the Lord? It is a reverential awe and respect for God's greatness and his holy justice. That's the fear of the Lord. In the Middle Ages, they pendulum swung this way and emphasized the fear of the Lord to the neglect of the love of God. But in our modern times, we have pendulum swung the other way and emphasized the love of God to the incomplete absence of the fear of God. There's a phrase found in the scriptures in the Old Testament speaking of different places and different people groups, and it would say something like, and there was no fear of the Lord there. That describes where we're at today in the 21st century. No fear of God. That is not a good thing. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. This is a fascinating passage. because This is after... Saul gets saved and stops the persecution of the church. So the church is getting persecuted by Saul, who becomes Paul. Uh, he then gets saved, and this is the result. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. So of course we expect that, right? Peace and strengthened. They're no longer getting persecuted. But look at this living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So they didn't abandon the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord, you don't have to fear anything else. And so that's what we see here, living in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. They had the balance that we need to get back to. The balance of the fear and the love of God. But there is no fear of the Lord. Saw just recently on the news, uh, Andrew Cuomo said after the death count started to lower in New York City, he specifically said, God didn't slow the death count. We did. Wow. That sounds just like back at the Tower of Babel, seeking to make a name for themselves instead of giving glory to God. But the fear of the Lord, the fear of God is wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point of true wisdom. That's what we see from the scriptures. The fear of God. But the fear of the Lord, as I said before, it's different than being afraid. 
because the fear of the Lord draws us near to God. Let me show you one of the most tragic passages in the Bible. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. In Exodus chapter 20, this is right after they received the Ten Commandments. God himself actually spoke, and the people, all of the people of Israel, heard the voice of the Lord speaking. And this is their response. Exodus 20, verse 18. All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountains surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people. Now watch this. Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. So notice here, Moses, he longed for the glory of God. He went into the presence of the Lord, even though it was a frightening experience. But the people stood at a distance. That's the tragedy of this. Because God wanted to speak to them. He wanted a personal relationship with them. But they didn't want that. And that's where we see in verse 20, it says, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him. There's a difference between being afraid and the fear of the Lord. And the difference is being afraid causes us to draw back from God. The true fear of the Lord causes us to draw near to the Lord in awe and wonder. And that's what the disciples are experiencing here. The fear of the Lord in that good sense, but a terrifying experience. But also, we need to see a glimpse of his glory can change us forever. A glimpse of his glory. When we see this passage, in verse two, it says that, and by the way, verse one, it says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Now we know, because of the context here, he's actually referring initially to what happens in the transfiguration here. They see a glimpse of his glory. They're seeing the kingdom of God come. And they do see the kingdom of God before they die. And they see God move in mighty ways, okay? But here, he's specifically saying it because it says after six days. So he's saying that happened after six days, connecting the two. And then he says, they went up to the high mountain and it says he was transfigured in front of them. This is where he became, his clothes were dazzling, extremely white, etc. Uh, he was transfigured. Metamorpho is the Greek word that's used here. We get our word metamorphosis from it. When a worm becomes a butterfly, etc. He was absolutely transformed in front of them. Completely changed. Now what's fascinating about this is this word is also used in two other places in the New Testament in reference to us when we see the glory of God, okay? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Here, he's referring to when we see the glory of God, we are transfigured, transformed, absolutely changed. Look what it says here. Verse 18, we all, 
with unveiled faces. Now, this is a reference back to Moses. Remember, when Moses went into the presence of the Lord, he shined and he had to put a veil over his face because of that. He says here, we all, with unveiled faces, because we're not gonna stop shining. He had to put the veil on to, because he, the shining would go away. He says, no, for us, we all, with unveiled faces, we wanna see it all, are are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed, there's the metamorpho, into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. When we see a glimpse of the glory of God, it's as if we're looking into a mirror where we see his glory and it bounces off back onto us and transforms us from glory to glory. So it's a gradual transformation, but it's a change. So we long to see more and more those glimpses of his glory. And that is what God wants for us because that's what changes us and transforms us. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Another instance where metamorpho is used. In Romans, you have chapters 1 through 11, which is those great chapters on doctrine and especially the great doctrine of salvation and justification by faith. But then in chapter 12, he begins far more practical stuff in light of the great doctrines that we learn. And this is what he says right at the beginning of this new section. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of the mercy of God that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ, wow, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship, to present yourselves as servants to the Lord, to surrender to him, to the king, allegiance to the king as we saw last week. Now look at verse two. Do not be conformed to this age. See, this age, the God of this age is in control. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one, it says in 1 John chapter 5. Don't be conformed to the way of the world because it's going in the wrong direction. But instead, be transformed. There it is, metamorpho. Be transformed. It is a passive verb. You don't transform yourself. You are transformed. Allow yourself to be transformed by God as you see his glory. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it says in this passage, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We are transformed also by the renewing of our minds. As we dig into, especially to the scriptures, we begin to see things the way God sees them. We begin to think God's thoughts, not the world's thoughts. And the fog and the haze go away. Be transformed. And so, a glimpse of his glory can change us forever. The next section, verses 7 through 10, we see that to hear the voice of God is critical. It says, a cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. 
And so we see here a part of the secrecy theme again. Don't speak of this until after I've risen from the dead. They didn't know what he meant by that. But we see here the voice from God speaking them and saying to them, listen to my son. Listen to him. To hear the voice of God is critical. You see, our human perspectives are often foolish. Remember Peter? (laughs) The way he responded initially when he sees Elijah and Moses, what does he say? We gotta make some tents. We gotta have a camping party. He didn't know what he was saying. He was terrified, okay? But so often our human perspectives are often foolish. Then the cloud comes. This cloud that comes and overshadows them. This is the Shekinah glory cloud referred to in the Old Testament. It's referred to in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 48, when they were sanctifying the the, uh, tabernacle where they would then begin to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. So at the initiation of the tabernacle, the glory cloud comes. Same thing happens with the temple. After Solomon builds the temple in 2 Corinthians, uh, Chronicles chapter 7 verses 1 through 3 we see the same instance this cloud comes over and it fills first the tabernacle later the temple fills them so full of the glory of God that the people couldn't even go in the priests had to get out it was amazing and that's what they're experiencing here the Shekinah glory cloud and then they hear the voice of God And he says, this is my beloved son. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is God the son who appears to the humans. Now, when he was with them, most of the time, they just saw him as a human being. But here, they see a glimpse of his glory. They see beyond what he really, who he really is. He is God incognito. So we see this and imagine the voice as they hear it. And how important that is to hear the voice of God. You see, our God is the God who speaks. Francis Schaeffer said, he is God and he is not silent. That is an absolute fact. He has revealed himself. He has spoken through the prophets clearly. And we have the word of God that brings that about, brings that out. I was, uh, it was interesting, just this week, I don't even know how this happened, but I ran into this liberal feminist. And we got, she was on a bicycle and I was on a walk and we got into this conversation. <laughs> she saw my shirt, it had some Greek on it. And we got into this conversation about the word of God. And she went on and on and on and on. And then I, every now and then I would say something. <laughs> it was pretty funny. But, uh, but I challenged her, I said, well, I just go by the, the Bible, God's word, because God loved us enough to give us his word that we can trust in. He loved us enough. You see, unless God speaks clearly, we are hopeless and he is unkind. If there was a God and he didn't reveal himself clearly in such a way that we know this is his word, that would be not kind. But look at Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. 
Here's a great passage of scripture. The, the way the book of Hebrews begins, it says, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see who the son is? He is the exact expression of his nature, of the nature of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. And they got a glimpse of this because God has spoken. He has revealed himself. You see, the Bible is based in history, unlike most other religions. God's word is powerful. Jeremiah says it's like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. According to the word of God, Jesus had to rise from the dead. That's what Jesus is. Remember, God the Father says, listen to him. What does Jesus say? He says, don't say anything until I've risen from the dead. In other words, he's going to rise from the dead. And he spoke of this. The resurrection, a, very, a verifiable historical fact is proof that Jesus is the only way to God. Christianity is the only true religion. We don't say that because we're boasting, because we think we're anything special. No, we think he's that special. And this is the evidence we have. Satan has sent spies to deceive the masses with false cures for the ultimate problem on planet Earth. The ultimate problem. The Earth is broken because of sin. And Jesus is the only cure. The only cure. All other cures are actually poisons. And that's what Satan wants to divert our attention to. You see, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25 says, There is a way which seems right unto a man, but in the end it leads to death. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter where your heart or mind is. Do you have the truth or not? It's like this water here. I placed this water down here earlier today, and I'm assuming that it's still the safe, clean, pure water that I put down there. But there was a time in which I was diverted, and it's possible that some of the guys that are here helping, maybe they don't like me. Maybe they secretly put poison in this water. What really matters is not what I think. Just kidding. They're good. It matters what is true. And that's why God showed us what is true. To hear the voice of God is critical. And it's loudest and clearest in the Bible. Now finally though, verses 11 through 13, we see to know the prophecies of the end makes sense of the present. To know the prophecies of the end. Look at what it says. We'll start in verse 11. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Remember, Moses and Elijah had met them. 
Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. And so they have this question about Elijah. And here we see, to know the prophecies then makes sense of the present. And the reason why I say this, I want you to look at Matthew's version of this. He adds a little bit to it. Look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 11 through 13. He says, Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, here's the fascinating part. The Old Testament, we'll look, we'll look at that in just a moment, predicts Elijah's going to come back, okay? Not in a reincarnation or anything like that, but in a figure who represents and is like Elijah. And Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew, he is coming. So in other words, in verse 11, it's still future. But he says, but he also already has come in the person of John the Baptist. So we see that there's some partial fulfillments to this ultimate prediction found in Malachi. But in the end, and that's what Malachi is referring to, at the very end of time, we will see that Elijah must come. But he did partially come in the person of John the Baptist. They both actually had leather belts and some other things that you could look at. So here we see Elijah is coming and will restore everything. Now back to our passage. Jesus, he says, they're asking about Elijah. He's going to get to that in just a moment. But he says before that, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. The Bible predicted the Messiah would suffer. So the Bible predicted in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53 and in Psalm 22, that Messiah would suffer a brutal death by being pierced in the hands and feet. Now, those were both predicted hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Clearly, God knew, though, and he spoke through those prophets in that clear manner. This is what's going to happen, and this is what happened to Jesus. So they were fulfilled. But also, the Bible predicted Elijah would come. Let's look at that passage now, what Mark is referring to here. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. These are the last verses of the Old Testament. The... Last book written in the Old Testament was Malachi and the last verses of the Old Testament pointing us to what's to come in the end. It says, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant. There's Moses, and now he's going to mention Elijah. The statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Here we see that the Bible predicted Elijah would come. He comes initially in the person of John the Baptist, but in the end, he's going to come at the very end of time. I believe that Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 13, is referring to that final coming 
of Elijah. And many scholars are in agreement with this. So let's look at Revelation and see what it says. In Revelation chapter 11, here we see, speaking of the last seven years of the history of this world before the return of Jesus, the first three and a half years is what this is referring to. Look at Revelation 11, verse 3. He says, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. So that's for three and a half years, my two witnesses. Many scholars believe, and I agree with them, this is Elijah and Moses, just the same two that appeared to Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, prophesied in the book of Zechariah. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. You notice here, same with Elijah who had power over the rain, same with Moses who turned water into blood. That's another reason why we believe these. that's, that's who we're, we're referring to here. When they finished their testimony, the beast, that's the Antichrist, that comes up out of the abyss, will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So Jerusalem. So they're going to be in Jerusalem for those first three and a half years, and that, but then get killed by the Antichrist. And some of the people's tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. That phrase, those who live on the earth, phrase throughout the book of Revelation, literally it says the earth dwellers, those who are deceived by Satan, who've been blinded by the God of this age. But after three and a half days, the, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Many people get saved. Revival begins at this point in the tribulation time. They're terrified, but with the fear of God. And so we see this prediction of Elijah. I believe that the current plague, COVID-19, that we're experiencing is one of the birth pains. It's not the plagues of the book of Revelation yet, but it's the birth pain spoken of in Matthew 24. Precursors to the final great tribulation meant to wake us up ahead of time because it's near. Meant to wake us up ahead of time. Now here's the question. Are you awake? The elders got together to discuss what reopening will look like. And one thing we decided is that we don't want to go back to normal. We want to move ahead in God's plan. Are you 
hearing from God during this time of sequester. Email me and share with me what you're sensing from God. If we're beginning to hear the rumbling of the end, then we're living in the most exciting time of history. It's going to be a kick. And and God's going to be speaking to his people. What is he saying to you? It says Elijah will restore families. What is God doing in your family? What is your quiet time like? Are you seeing glimpses of his glory and experiencing tastes of his goodness? Do you long to hear the voice of the Lord? Are you digging into his word? And I want to pray over you. May God bless each and every one of you and your families in such a way that you do not have any fear anymore. That the circumstances of our situation right now, the fear would dissipate and be gone. But instead, that you would have this pure fear of the Lord, a reverential awe and respect of God. And may God bless you in such a way that you even experience a boldness, a boldness to share with others what you're sensing from God and what you're seeing when you see those glimpses of his glory. And may he give you fresh visions of his glory and may it change you into the people that God wants you to be. God bless you.